you know, with the uh, craziness of the world, uh, there's a lot of things going on all around us every day, headlines, things that we see. Uh, we see technology kind of going to places that I don't know that any of us could have fathomed. I don't know, in my childhood, I don't think I could have fathomed some of the things that we see today. And all the stuff that goes around us, uh, sometimes we say things like, well, I wonder what it's going to be like for the next generation. Or if things can continue like this, what will it be like? And we say those kind of things regularly. But I just want to ask you this question. Can you imagine, uh, assuming that Jesus doesn't return before then, what things will be like 400 years, maybe 500 years from now? Start to think about what that might be like or what changes might come or how different things would be, right? Will we have colonies on Mars? Will we be going to the ends of the universe? All the things that we're talking about doing as people will, uh, what will our government look like? Uh, what will our nation look like? Uh, if we think about it, and sometimes it's very hard for us to think in those terms, four or 500 years, we don't often think that way. None of us here sitting in this room will be here uh, if Jesus hasn't returned. None of us will be alive at that time in four or 500 years. So we often don't think that way. But I want you just to try to, to, to push the limits of your mind a little bit on that. If we go back 500 years, we can see the world has drastically changed in the last four or 500 years. We've seen nations rise and fall. In fact, our nation didn't even exist yet. Now one of the most powerful on the face of the earth, and it wasn't even in existence 500 years ago. And so you start to try to think about what that would look like and the changes that would come. And although it's very hard to fathom, you can make some assumptions that there'd be a lot of rise and falls of nations and different things going on and the, the landscape of the world would change greatly. And as you think about that and think about what that might look like, you can quickly come to the world would be unrecognizable in a whole lot of ways from where we sit today, just as it was 500 years ago or 500 years prior to that. And I say that because what happens in Daniel chapter 8 here is God gives Daniel a glimpse of the future, several hundred years in the future of what will take place and what will happen with nations and rising and falling and things that are there, and it terrifies him. He sees it and he goes, whoa. In fact, it says at the very end that he was overcome and lay sick for days at what's going to happen and what's going on in that. And so we're going to think about that a little bit today because what's happened in the book of Daniel is there's a shift that takes place in chapter 7. If you were here with us last week, you you saw that. Uh, Luke did a good job of introducing that. But in chapters 1 through 6, we have stories of Daniel and his friends living in Babylonia at a certain time. And it's it's a, a narrative of what happens and their faithfulness in the midst of being exiles in a nation very different from their own. But then from chapter 7 to the end of the book, except for one prayer in chapter 9, it's all visions of what's going to take place in the future. And there's a pretty radical shift in the book, to be honest. It's almost like two books in a lot of ways. The tone and the feel shifts very greatly in chapter 7. But in these visions, as God is showing us the rise and falls of nations and empires and what's going to happen, he's reminding us in all of this that he is working in spite of great evil that rises and falls throughout time. That even though that man has plans and comes up with different things and nations come and go, God is still sovereign over all of it. And so part of what God is doing in these visions to Daniel is he's encouraging Daniel. He's encouraging the generations that will come after him. He's showing them that he is sovereign and he is at work in these things. 
but he's also encouraging us. He's showing us that the things that happen throughout history and the things that come and go, that none of it, it takes God by surprise. None of it catches him with like, oh no, what has happened here? And part of what he is showing us that is to remind us that that is true. And so remember what we've been saying throughout the book of Daniel is that the book of Daniel is so relevant to us because what Daniel's dealing with in Babylon is so much the same things that we are dealing with today. That we see all sorts of things that go directly against God and what he says, but God is sovereign in all of this and God is reminding us of that. And so today as we look at Daniel chapter 8, I just want us to be reminded of how relevant it is that God is still on his throne even today. Even the things that we see happening all around us that can kind of throw us for a loop. That God is still there. And so the way we're going to look at this chapter is we have this vision that God gives to Daniel. And really the breakdown of the chapter is this. Verses 1 through 14 is the vision that he has. And then 15 to 26 is the angel Gabriel coming and telling him what the vision represents. And so we're going to look at the vision and its uh, representation, what he's telling us it is, just big picture of what it is. And we're just going to work our way through that first. But then the second thing I want us to do is that we have a vantage point that Daniel doesn't have. And I want us to stop and think for just a second how everything that Daniel said has been fulfilled, that God told Daniel and he has written down for us has now been fulfilled. And this picture that God gives us is so clear that God was purely in control of all this the whole way through. And when we see that, then the last part I want us to consider is what it teaches about us, about God, and the way he is moving and working even today. And so let's just start with the vision, the big picture here of what's happening. Very quickly, Luke talked about this a little bit last week, if you were here. And so I won't belabor this point, but we have an obvious shift in genre in this book when we get to the second half. Right? The, the way this book is, is split up, 1 to 6, historical narrative of what's happening in Babylon, 7 through 12, we now have this kind of apocalyptic literature that is visions towards the future. And we read those things differently. If we're going to handle God's word rightly and come at it and, and give it the reverence and respect that it deserves, we're not going to read those in the exact same way. And I say that just for this reason. When we read these visions that God gives us about the future, sometimes we can get lost in the weeds on these things. We can start to try to make connections that aren't there and we can kind of uh, start to build a theology out of some things that aren't exactly that clear and we're not sure exactly what it's saying. And what happens is we lead, that leads to unhelpful speculation. And that's happened a lot through the history of the church. And so I would just say this to you, when God gives us a vision of the future and what's happening, it's never to lead us to speculate. He never calls us to be in speculation on all these things. He's showing us that he is sovereign and he is in control and what he's doing. And it's there for an encouragement that God is in control of all these things, but it's not there to lead us off into the weeds on speculation and conspiracies and all sorts of things like that. That's not what he's calling us to. That's the first thing. But then the second thing, as we look at this, you may not notice this. You, well, I would say you wouldn't notice this if you open it and you're reading in your English Bible or you're reading the Bible that's there in the pew in front of you. But chapter 1 and then chapter 8 through 12 are written originally in Hebrew with chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic. And you go, okay, whatever. <laughs> Aramaic was the universal language kind of at the time. Hebrew was more the language of Israel, right? And so it was more pointed, uh, 8 through 12, more pointed to the Jewish people. 
And I think part of what God was doing, without belaboring that point too much, I think part of what he's saying here is it's written in Hebrew, this chapter that we're looking at, is that God is partly addressing his people and the difficulty they will face in the world. The things of Babylon that we've been talking about. Babylon's not just the nation of Babylon, but the spirit of Babylon that runs through the ages. That we don't need God, that power and money and governments are the way things get done. And when we embrace that, how detrimental that is. And I think what God is reminding us is that we'll always be present. And as his people that are called the faithfulness in him, we will always stand outside of that. And he's reminding his people, and that includes us today, that he is sovereignly in control even when nations rise and fall. So with that in mind, let's look at this vision. You know, chapter 7, we had a vision of four beasts that come up. Here, we're going to look at just two. It's going to be a ram and a goat. And so if you look at last week, what you see is God kind of giving a big picture of a whole big, long period. Chapter eight is almost like he's zooming into just part of it. Instead of four beasts and in this bigger picture, he's now kind of narrowing the focus a little bit. And so that's what we're seeing here in chapter eight. And so we start with this vision and what Daniel sees is a ram in verses three and four. And he says, I raised my eyes and saw and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. And no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. And so one of the things you go, okay, well, what's the deal with rams and what's the deal with the beasts in chapter seven? Well, this gets into the apocalyptic uh, literature, this vision that God gives. It's very symbolic. But one of the things we've been saying throughout the book of Daniel, if you've been with us as we've been going all the way through it, is that when we as people uh, embrace the spirit of Babylon, that this world is all there is, we ignore God, we can do this in our own will and our own government and our own power and we don't need God, what happens is we quickly become devouring beasts. And that's one of the themes that's going through the book of Daniel. We're seeing that over and over. We see a vision like this in chapter two a little bit in one of the dreams. And so you're seeing this happening over and over. It's the same thing here. And so what you see in these beasts are nations that turn from God and grab power and start to do it themselves. And they say, we don't need God. And this is what they look like. And so that's the image that we're getting again. And so here it's a ram and it's a ram with two horns and you can still go, okay, great. It's a ram with two horns. Doesn't tell me a whole lot, but we don't have to speculate because the way the chapter is broken down, he has the vision, but then Gabriel tells him who it is and what it's meant to be. And so if you look at verse 20, Gabriel speaks and he tells him about the ram. He says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And so he tells him what you're seeing and it's going and it's conquering. It's going north and south and to the west, but not to the east. He gives you some clear direction on what's happening here. He says, that's the Media and Persians, the Media Persia empire. And that's what's coming. And so that's what he's telling him here. And so that's the first part that you see uh, of Daniel's vision. But let me just remind you of a fact about the book of Daniel that's helpful to understand here. We've talked about this a little bit through the series, but maybe you don't remember or you weren't here for part of that. But this chapter, chapter eight, it tells us right at the beginning, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. 
548 BC. Daniel has this vision, right? Chapter five that we looked at, which Belshazzar is kind of the main character in. We saw the handwriting on the wall and his kingdom comes to an end. That takes place about 10 years after this vision. And so don't let that confuse you in the book of Daniel. Chapter seven through 12 are not chronologically the end of the book. They actually are interspersed, the visions that Daniel has in one through six. Chapter six is actually the last chapter or last chronologically in the book. And so I say that just to remind you that when God calls Daniel in to speak to King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon at the time, and he sees the handwriting on the wall and he tells him, you're done and your kingdom's over. That's, that's what the handwriting says. Your time has come and you're done. Daniel's already had this vision. He already know, he already knows that the Medo Persia empire is coming and he's not caught off guard by that. And, And I say that just to remind you of this. That when the world seems to be out of control and gone mad and all kinds of things happen and there's great big shifts, God's not surprised by it. And if we cling to what God tells us in our word, in his word, it will be our kind of waypoint in the midst of everything. That he keeps us in that. And that's exactly what Daniel did. And you see throughout his entire life, he continues to trust God and what he has shown him. So that said, the the ram is the Medo-Persian empire with the two horns representing the two. But then he sees a goat. Verse five, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So the goat comes fast. Yes, it is a flying goat. It's almost comical if you think about it. The goat comes flying through and he's moving really fast. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes and he came to the ram with the two horns that had been standing on the bank of the canal and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him close, close to the ram and he was enraged against him and he struck the ram and he broke his two horns and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and he trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken And instead, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. And then out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And so you have this, now we kind of switch to this goat that comes up. And the goat comes up to the ram and basically destroys the ram. But again, we don't have to guess on what's happening or who the goat is or what's taking place because Gabriel tells them. And so verse 21 He says, and the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of the, of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not from his power. And the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise, right? And so he says, Greece is going to come after the Medo-Persian empire. And they're going to come with a great king that's going to lead them very quickly to just take over everything. And then that king suddenly is going to go away. And then four, it's going to be split into four uh, parts after that, the four horns that come up. And then there's going to be one horn that comes out of those four, right? So you follow what he's saying. Basically, he's telling Daniel, after Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire is coming and they're going to rule for a while. But then Greece is going to come after them with a great king and they're going to take over. And so Daniel gets to the end of this vision and he's sick. 
It says he lays in his bed for days. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Everything that Daniel's seen in his life, at this point now, he's getting up in age. He's been in the Babylonian empire for a long time. He saw them destroy his place, Jerusalem, where he is from. He saw them destroy Israel, take them into exile. And he's been living in the midst of this. And now God comes and says, oh, by the way, after them is coming the Medo-Persians. And after them is coming Greece. And by the way, there's going to come a king out of that Greek empire that's going to be awful in ways you cannot imagine. It's like a gut punch. He's been seeing all this unfolding and what he gets is, oh, by the way, there's going to be a lot more bad that comes. And so he lays on his bed sick for days. And you can imagine why. He knows what it's like when nations take over. And he knows what happens when great violence comes. And he's seen it up close. And so Daniel is sick and seeing all this. So what does all that mean? You read that and you go, okay, great. (laughs) It's kind of depressing. A lot of bad's going to happen, Daniel. There you go. But see, there's part of this story as we look at it that we can see that Daniel couldn't see. We have a vantage point that he didn't. Remember, he's getting this in 548 BC before any of this has taken place as God lays it out before him and shows him. But what we know from history is what has happened. And what we can stand back and then see as we we see how all this comes together is how amazingly accurate what God told Daniel actually was. What God was doing. And he was showing him. He was showing Daniel that he can see the beginning from the end. That he sees every bit of it. And so I want us just to think about this for a second, what happened throughout history. Maybe you're not a history buff. I'll give you the big picture quickly of what happened here. And so we know after the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC, the Medo-Persians came in and destroyed Babylon. We actually see that at the end of chapter 5. Handwriting on the wall, you're done. And then it says that very day they came in and the Medo-Persians come in and Darius takes over. And you see that. And you see it right there in the happening in Daniel's lifetime, at least the beginning of it. And you can follow through history. Seventh century, you go back just a little bit. The Persians came into the area. They started to overtake the Medes. They kind of came together. But the Persians really were the ones kind of driving that bus, leading the way. And the Persians come in and they come together. And so when he sees this vision of the the uh, ram with two horns and one is higher that came after, that's the Persians. The Medes and the Persians, and they come together and they take over. And that's what he tells you. And they went from the north and the south and to the west, but not the east. And that describes exactly what happened with this empire. And they came in and they took over after, after the Babylonians. But even more impressive than that is what he tells you about the goat. The goat that is Greece that would come after. And if you know anything about world history, that empire of the Medo-Persians stays for a while from about 539 to 334 BC. But in 334 BC, a young man, 22 years old, becomes king in Greece, becomes one of the most famous people in all of history named Alexander the Great, the great king of Greece. And Alexander comes in and he leads them with such power and precision and speed that he overtakes the world in 10 years. Right? And so when he sees this vision, 
that there is this goat and it's Greece and it has this king that is leading the way as it flies across the face of the earth. What Daniel was seeing is Alexander the Great conquering the known world. And Alexander the Great does. And he comes and he's still studied today because of the speed in which he did it and the power in which he did it at such a young age. And he conquered Persia and he conquered the world and he went all over. And if you know anything about history, you know that Alexander stands right there as one of the great military leaders. But one of the uh, interesting facts, kind of side fact to all that, you know, when Alexander came into Jerusalem, he came in as he's conquering the world and he rides into Jerusalem. The Jewish priests went out and met him at the gates, right? The historian Josephus tells us that they went out and they met Alexander at the great and they showed him the book of Daniel. They said, hey, this is you. You're the horn of the goat. This is you taking over right now. Now, history tells us what Josephus tells us. He was very taken by that. He went, huh, all right, how about that? That is me. What he didn't see or maybe didn't believe or maybe it kept him up at night, I don't know, is the very next thing it tells us is that he will be cut off at a very young age, right? Verse 8 says, Then the goat became exceedingly great, But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four heavens, four winds of heavens. And what we know is Alexander the Great died when he was 33 years old, and it was very suddenly. Here he was, he'd conquered, just about conquered everything he wanted to. He's setting up his kingdom in Babylon. He's going to set up his kingdom there. That's where he's going to live out his days and rule from. And all of a sudden he falls sick and he dies. And it happened so suddenly that he never named a successor. And so what history tells us is Alexander the Great and his great empire gets broken into four kingdoms, four warring factions geographically because he never named a successor. And so the great horn that conquers the world is broken off at the kind of height of his power. And all of a sudden there's four kingdoms that come out of that. And it's exactly what God showed Daniel here. Four kingdoms that come out of Greece. But then the last part of that is it tells us that this little horn or the second horn that comes out, you see it in verse 9, out of one of them, talking about the four horns that have now come after Alexander, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Uh, We know from context here, Daniel's talking about Jerusalem what he would refer to as the glorious land. And so he's talking about this small horn that comes out of the four and sets his sight on conquering more, but he has a particular uh, vision to go towards Jerusalem. And so you go, well, what is happening here with the small horn that comes out of it? And attacks and sets its sights on Jerusalem in verse 9. It says, and what it tells us about this person is they're pretty awful. Right? Verses 24 and 25 says they cause fearful destruction, killing many, including saints. Verses 11 and 12, they take away the regular burnt offerings, rises up against the prince of princes, but suddenly his life comes to an abrupt end. It even tells us in the midst, well, how long will this last? 2,300 days and nights. So day, mornings and evenings, right? That's what it's saying, 2,300. So that's like a little over three years. And you go, well, what is it talking about? What's the little horn that came out of the four, the four kingdoms that came from Greece? And if we look at history in 175 BC, there was a man named Antiochus IV. And he referred to himself as Antiochus Epiphanes. 
which means God manifest. That's what he referred to himself as. I am God manifest. And he set his sights on destroying a huge section, including Jerusalem. And I'd say when you talk about here how it says this man set his sights and it was a power that was not his own and he claimed to be the prince of princes and he cut off the the sacrifices that were taking place and all the things it says about this man. I want to remind you something we've been saying throughout this. The Babylonian empire represents Babylon throughout the ages, which denies that God is real and who he is and seeks to grab power for ourself. That is demonic in its activity. And when it says this man had a power that was not his own, I think that's exactly what it's describing. Antiochus Epiphanes went to Jerusalem and he walked into Jerusalem and he just started to destroy everything in front of him. He walked into the temple and declared himself God. He set up uh, idols uh, from the Greek culture that people would then worship. He went into the Holy of Holies and he took a pig and he cut it open and let the blood pour all over everything. Obviously, if you, if you don't know, in Jewish law, pigs are unclean. It was, and he did it on purpose to show them. And he let the blood flow. And then he went and killed 40,000 Jews. He enslaved another 40,000 Jews. He declared himself God, Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. Which, by the way, all those around him called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. I mean, this guy was evil to the core and he goes through and he does all these things and you see all of this happen and his reign of terror lasts from 167 BC to just a little over three years later in 164 BC. And one day Antiochus is riding in his chariot and all of a sudden out of nowhere, he has a pain in his stomach, in his bowels. He pronounces that he's fine and to push on and a few miles later falls out of his chariot and dies. It's exactly everything that God showed Daniel, that this person is going to be cut off at a time and it's not going to be from natural things. And so he shows him every bit of this. And you see the awfulness of Antiochus Epiphanes. We can see all these things in history. So, okay, and I get this is not a sermon like usual. There's a whole lot of history and a whole lot of visions and a whole lot of things. You go, okay, what do we do with that? We stop and we marvel that nothing takes God by surprise. That the rise and falls of nation, that none of it catches God by surprise. That he was showing Daniel, there are some dark times coming, but I know they're coming and I am at work. And even though it makes Daniel sick, and even though he sees it and is kind of taken aback by it. And so I want us just to consider a few things as we end, as we look at all of that. And you go, what do we take away from that? And the first thing that I would say to you is that despite sometimes it seems like evil is prospering, God is still sovereign. When nations rise and presidents or kings or people stick their chest out and tell you how great they are and what they're doing and how much they know and how they're going to do all of it, that not a single one of them comes to power except for God's hand. God is sovereignly in control of all things. He sees all of it. And if you look throughout history, these men rise and fall. They come and go. Alexander conquers the entire world in 10 years and he dies and he's gone and God is still on his throne. And so when we see all these things happening, despite it seeming like evil's winning for a season, God is still sovereign. But the second thing 
is when we see this and we see what God is showing us and what he's doing here in these visions in Daniel is we start to see that God's timeline is not our timeline. We have a hard time fathoming what's going to happen 500 years in the future. I have a hard time trying to figure out what I'm doing next week, let alone the next generation or what's after that. But God sees all of it. And his ways are not our ways and his timeline is not our timeline. We are often slaves to time in the sense of we're slaves uh, to the limitations that hinder us. We think in generation, you know, maybe a hundred years. After that, we're not going to be here. So it's hard for us to even think through those things. But when God shows us his timetable, it's very different. He sees the beginning from the end and he's not thrown by what's happening in the world. And so we need to be reminded of that regularly. We need to be reminded that our life, when we breathe our last breath, is not the end. That's as we see it in this way, but that God's plans go on far longer than that. And so when we start to see that, it changes the way we see those things. But then once we start to see that God's timeline is not our timeline, the third thing I would tell you is that on a long enough timeline, God works all things together for your good and his glory. Sometimes we don't get to see that. A lot of times we don't fathom how all that works together. In fact, when you read this story and you see what happened to the exiles in Babylon, and you think about the people who lived through Alexander's conquest, or the people that had to live through Antiochus' epiphanies, and they saw those things, There's so many things that in their life and in that time that they couldn't fathom how God was working. And so I'll do this very briefly because this could be its own whole sermon, but it's important, I think, just to kind of get our head around this. But when God allowed Israel to be scattered from the Babylonian exile, right? The time that Daniel lives in. The Babylonians come in and they are awful and they are violent and they lay everything to waste and they take out exiles and the people get scattered. During that time, as those people, the the temple was no more, it was laid waste, people got scattered all throughout. What happened through the years is they started to uh, set up synagogues, places where people could go and hear about God, where they could gather together and they could hear about the God of Israel. And these synagogues got set up all over the known world around that time. And so over time, they stayed there. Some would go back when they got to go back to Jerusalem, but many would stay there, and they just kind of were outposts that were there. And so it was kind of an unattended consequence that the Babylonians never would have thought about, but it took place. Then after that, Alexander the Great comes. If you know anything about Alexander the Great, he had this view of he was going to Hellenize the world. And what that means is he's going to spread Greek culture, language, culture, the way to see things. He was going to spread it over the face of the earth. And for a large part, for in a large way, he did. He succeeded in what he wanted to do. And what ended up happening is everyone started to speak Greek. Greek became the universal language throughout the time. And pretty much everybody spoke Greek. And so again, a somewhat intended consequence of what Alexander was trying to do, but unintended in the sense of it made everybody be able to communicate in a way that they couldn't before. But here's what happens. You've got these outposts set up. You've got Alexander actually after, after him, which it's not part of this, but it's in some of Daniel's other visions. The Romans come and they unite the world in the sense of they build roads where you can travel everywhere and they bring peace from their mighty hand and all the stuff that they do. But here's what happens. Jesus comes 
And in Galatians 4, 4, it says the fullness of time Jesus came. And he came into the world at the time that God had set forth. And he lived the life that we haven't lived. And he died the death that we deserved. And then he gloriously rose again. And then he said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. And you know what they did? They went to those synagogues where they spoke Greek and they now had the Old Testament that had been translated into Greek and it had been disseminated in all these ways. And they walked in and they said, do you see how everything in this book points to Jesus? And God took what man meant for evil and what these different kings thought they were building their kingdom and he used all of it to point to Jesus and what he would come and do. You see, when we get so overwhelmed with the world and we go, how could this ever work out? I I know some of you feel that today with presidents and nations and things that are happening and you look at our government and you go, what in the world are they thinking? And it's easy to feel that way. There's a whole lot of things that we scratch our heads and we go, that looks nothing like what God calls us to. God is sitting on his throne and he sees every bit of it. And he goes, I'm going to use this for my glory and your good. You just got to see it on a long enough timeline. God is still on his throne and he still is ruling and reigning. And he is going to bring his purposes to fruition, no matter what the plans of man seem to try to do. And that is good news. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. (laughs) You can feel like Daniel some days you sit on your bed and go, oh, this is terrible. But God is in control and he's showing us that to remind us of the goodness of what he's doing. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the ways in which you have revealed yourself. I thank you that we can look at Daniel chapter eight and see how you are moving through ages, through generation after generation, that even when evil seems to prosper, that you are at work and that you are bringing those things for good. And you are continuing to call us back to you and what you've done for us in Jesus. I pray that we'd see that afresh today, that we would trust you in all things. I pray that when we see things that are beyond our understanding, when we are frustrated with things that are happening, that we would look to you and what you have revealed to us in your word and that we would rest in it, knowing that you are good and that you love us and that you have plans that are far beyond anything we can imagine. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.